0: Cats Podcast. Ready? Let's go.
1: Hey, everyone. I have an announcement to make. As of November 1st, the Community Cats Podcast is going to go to three days a week, providing great content and stories about incredible people helping cats in their communities. We just passed 100 episodes, and now we want to work on developing our Cat Academy and wrapping up our Community Cats Grants program. This show is for you, so please share your thoughts, ideas, comments, and guest ideas. If you want me to go back to five shows a week, just let me know. I'm happy to serve. Take care, and thanks again for supporting the Community Cats Podcast. (coughs) Welcome to the Community Cats Podcast. I'm your host, Stacey LeBaron. I've been involved helping homeless cats for over 20 years with the Merrimack River Feline Rescue Society. The goal of this podcast is to expose you to amazing people who are improving the lives of cats. I hope these interviews will help you learn how you can turn your passion for cats into action. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Martha Smith Blackmore. Dr. Smith is a veterinarian and president of a private veterinary forensics consulting firm, Forensic Veterinary Investigations, LLC. She's also an adjunct professor at the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine and a fellow at the Center for Animals and Public Policy at Tufts University. Martha was recently appointed to the International Association of Chiefs of Police Forensic Science Committee, and she's an associate member of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. She's a founding board member of the International Veterinary Forensic Sciences Association. Martha is the past chair of the Animal Welfare Committee of the American Veterinary Medical Association and past president of the Association of Shelter Veterinarians. She's an author and editor of the Guidelines for Standards of Care in Animal Shelters and is frequently requested to consult on animal cruelty cases by prosecutors and police departments throughout Massachusetts and around the country. Martha teaches on the topics of animal cruelty, veterinary forensics, and the link at the Animal Control Officers of Massachusetts Academy, the Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine, and at various national conferences. Martha makes her home in Weymouth with three cats two dogs, a bird, and a husband. Well, Martha, I'm glad you've got the number of cats there right in your house. (laughs) Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me today.
0: I'm delighted to join the conversation.
1: (laughs) So what's your experience? What's your experience been with community cats in the past? How'd you get started with them?
0: Well, I started as a... uh, As a veterinarian in an animal shelter setting, I'm volunteering at um, spay-neuter days. So I got to see how very passionate uh, the cadre of volunteers are who work around the clock to care for these cats, bring them in, and and address their needs and save their lives and help keep them safe. So it was a part of animal welfare that I didn't understand when I went to vet school. I didn't know it was out there. And then I learned about it as I was a shelter veterinarian and beyond. Basically, participating in those Sunday clinics was an eye-opener in terms of when you were at
1: school, did you think that there were lots of cats out there that needed to be spayed and neutered?
0: I had no idea. I thought cats were what you saw is what you get I had no idea that there were cats where you couldn't see them and that the the cats that you can't see are everywhere, literally everywhere.
1: So we've known each other for for quite a few years, actually mainly through the spay-neuter component. You have been on a mobile spay-neuter clinic and I have started mobile spay-neuter clinics and so we've been able to sort of share our, our resources over the years with that, but More recently, and I'd like to focus a lot of this show on what you're currently working on, which is really seemingly getting to be a
0: specialist in veterinary forensics.
1: Is that correct? That's
0: right. My work at the various animal welfare organizations that I was at was mostly veterinary medicine and shelter medicine and and the transformation of shelter medicine being caring for the animals that are in front of you in your building to caring for the animals that are in your community or helping to keep animals in their homes or in their environments and preventing them from coming into the animal shelter was one part of the broadening horizon of my work. Another area that Broadened was working for these organizations. They had special state troopers that would help to enforce animal cruelty law in Massachusetts. So I was increasingly finding myself answering questions Hey, Doc, the owner says this happened to the animal, but these are the injuries. What do you think? And so I was answering these questions from gut and really feeling like I, I want to get more educated about this because I don't want to be guessing. I want to know, especially when we're talking about justice issues. I don't want to get somebody in trouble for something they never did. So it became, it became such a strong interest of mine that I decided this is what I want to do. I, I hit one of those big birthdays. the ones that end in a zero and maybe mark the half of a century. And I thought about what is it do I want to do with the rest of my career? Where can I have the biggest impact and feel like I'm really contributing as much as I possibly can? And so I decided to focus on uh, cruelty issues and helping veterinarians and law enforcement and the public understand how to protect animals from a legal perspective. And so how do you get trained in that area? Well, uh, there are some training programs now, but when I got started, there wasn't. So I started meeting other veterinarians that had similar interests and we developed uh, the International Veterinary Forensic Sciences Association. And the ASPCA was fantastic in supporting that organization and helping to build an alliance with the University of Florida. And there is now an online, both a certificate program and a master's in veterinary forensics. So there's a very formal path people can take, veterinarians can take, and also animal control officers or other animal professionals to get further education. I developed my own education. And as a matter of fact, I spent the last year in a fellowship developing my skills. And I spent one day a week at the medical examiner's office in Boston, learning from, uh, as a um, medical examiner will do, learning from the dead. So learning from people who... um, who have died in very tragic circumstances. So that what I learn from those people, I can help translate to what unfortunately happens to animals in our communities. And going
1: back to what you were saying about how you get questions about, well, look at these injuries on the animal. And then the story that the person said, that's done for people as well as for animals is really being able to Take, that, take what you see visually and what, you've, what you're able to analyze and craft a story
0: of what actually might have happened? Exactly. So so often in animal um, cases, there is no witness. And if the animal's harmed but not deceased, it, it still can't tell you what has happened. A person might say, you know, I was mugged or, you know, something horrible happened. But an animal, we may just have this, this animal that's got a certain set of injuries. And, um, you know, we start asking the questions, well, could this be natural? Could this be hit by car? Could this be accidental? Or is this what we call non-accidental injury? And there are increasing numbers of studies coming out. Tufts University has a few and uh, out of New York and also out of Australia that look at patterns of injuries in animals that are hit by car versus animals that have suffered non-accidental injury. So we've, we're we're learning a lot but there is certainly a lot more research that we need to do. I would say veterinary forensics is where human medical legal studies was about in the early 1970s. So we have some ground to cover.
1: Wow. That's amazing. So, and then I would assume then you, are you pulled into court and having
0: to act as an expert witness or testimony as to what you're seeing? Yes. So I give t- testimony two ways. Uh, whenever I do an exam on an animal, I um, I do my regular medical record keeping as every veterinarian would, but then I also write an additional report and I call that my written testimony. This is in uh, layman's English and it is illustrated with some pictures, maybe with some arrows or some diagrams so that and I try to keep it to two pages, um, depending on the case, it sometimes has <laughs> to be longer, but This is a document that can walk through the court system and be the voice for that animal. So that's what I call my written testimony. And quite often when written testimony shows up and in the process of what's called discovery, the defense team has access to all the information that the prosecution team has. They see my report more often than not. The case ends there because there's going to be a plea. Nobody expected science to be brought into the courtroom. Nobody expected somebody to be able to say with some degree of certainty that this is what happened to the animal or what was said happened to the animal couldn't have happened to the animal. And here's the reasons why. So in most of my cases, they resolve short of adjudication. So they resolve short of having to go into the courtroom. However, there are plenty of cases where I have had to either testify in grand jury which is a process before a, court, uh, before a trial um, that leads to indictment, the process by which a person might be assigned charges. So I can testify in grand jury, and I have also testified in trial. And now let's take a moment to listen to a few words from our sponsors.
1: Accidental Exiles by Bruce Perry. Jesse McAllister, a young Texan and a Rock War vet, escapes to Europe where he seeks a new direction and to heal his desert wounds. Wandering the streets of Ascona, Switzerland, he meets and falls in love with a beautiful Italian waitress named Sonia Altarelli. Since the horrors of combat he encountered with a boyhood friend, Jesse, will have nothing more to do with war. This story is his farewell to arms. Check out Accidental Exiles on Amazon.com today. <coughs> Are you starting to think about that special holiday gift? Why not give the gift of a Community Cats podcast branded t-shirt, coffee mug, bag, or other item? This is the perfect way to spread the word about helping Community Cats. The proceeds from the sales will go to support the Community Cats podcast and the Community Cats Grants program, which helps small groups grow their fundraising programs to be able to fund more spay-neuter programs for free-roaming cats. Go to www.communitycatspodcast.com and click on our shop button in the menu bar today to get that perfect community cat gift right now. Thank you everybody for supporting the show. And then when it goes to the trial and the grand jury and and then it continues on through its process, in many cases, are you dealing with animals and people with abuse at the same time or is it... Often isolated, like you're just dealing with an animal situation, and not necessarily any abuse charges with regards to people.
0: There, there are certainly cases where um, animals and people have been harmed. The abuse of an animal is often a crime of power and control. So it's like any other domestic violence type situation. So an animal is being harmed as part of a dysfunctional method of controlling a family. So there may also be violence to elders, to domestic partners, to children. But from my perspective, I don't see any of that. That's all teased out. So I'm only presented with animals. I only want to hear the details related to the what may or may not have happened to the animal. And when I testify, when I'm involved in a court, I don't sit in the courtroom for the whole trial. I go in, I speak my piece, I'm cross-examined, and then I leave. So I don't know all the other stuff that's going on. So you're not allowed to have that bird's eye view, really, of that they try and keep you in isolation and just focused on what you're being asked to talk about right then and there. Th- that's the way the system works. And it's also my preference because there's a, there's a certain burden of uh, having to carry these horrible things and I deal with what I must and I don't take on what I don't need to know. So if I can't have a role in protecting a child or an elder or any human victim, that's, that's not what I do. That's not what I'm trained for. And I have to be really careful that I don't step outside my bounds. I can only offer my expertise as it is and really recognize my constraints. And for the same reason, I don't watch Animal Planet because I can't watch the I can't watch those sad commercials with the dogs behind the bars because that is sorrow that's not mine. I can't borrow somebody else's sorrow. I, I just do the work that's in front of me.
1: That's a way of managing the stresses of this whole profession, exactly, and, and that's a huge conversation, and and one we could go on forever and ever, you know, about the stresses for the veterinary profession as well as anybody really involved with caring for animals and compassion fatigue and and all of that, and um and I've touched upon it on some of my previous shows, and and it's very very important, and you are here dealing with in many cases, the worst of the worst. Mm -hmm. And so you definitely need to do a lot of self-care to make sure that you're protecting yourself. Now, not to dive into the worst of the worst, but if we're dealing, talking about community cats and and with the understanding that many feral cats are pretty good at avoiding trouble,
0: but what have you seen for cats in, in your experience with the cases that you've had so far? I hate to traumatize your listening audience with this, but the types of injuries that I've seen are impalements, drowning, fire, explosive devices, sharp force injury, and projectile, so being shot. So a a gamut, anything horrible, yes. And, and then of course there are the cases where, um, and I think this happens more often with the community cats than the, than the house cats per se that go outdoors. It is maybe a natural disease outbreak that people think the whole colony has been poisoned. So a pan outbreak, um, wiping out a colony, which, you know, it's tragic and it's horrible, but at least there's not some evil doer out there tiptoeing around and poisoning the cats.
1: And is that something that you've been asked to do at some point in time to determine whether it was a poisoning versus a disease outbreak? Yes. That does come up quite often where, you know, a whole colony of cats or quite a few cats have been found deceased and people will automatically assume that there is, you know, poisoning involved or something like that. So, you
0: know, getting those questions answered is very good. The other thing that happens is, unfortunately, coyote predation. And when cat parts start showing up, there's a cat head or a cat leg somewhere. The first thing that people think of is a serial killer. And they're absolutely certain that there's a a, a cat murderer out there. And yeah, There is, but he's got four paws and a tail, or, or she's got that, and a, a litter of kits back in the den to feed.
1: For a cat colony manager, you know, caretaker, are there any thoughts or tips or words of wisdom you'd want to share? share with them in terms of, you know,
0: how to handle something that appears to be pretty suspicious? If they have found a, a, a cat from their colony that they've been caring for that is unexpectedly dead. Which is, oh, you know, sort of God forbid, but if they do, I would advise that they call their animal control officer first and see if they have an interest in helping you figure out what has happened to the animal. And if you're in a community where the animal control officer doesn't have resources or is forbidden from helping out with cats, then you may want to call a private, a nonprofit animal welfare group in your area to see if they can help. If you're not getting answers right away, don't worry. Because you have time. Um, the thing to do is to wrap the body in a plastic bag and freeze it. Now, a lot of veterinarians will say to you, Oh, don't freeze anything because you're going to lose information once the animal's frozen. And it's true, when you freeze tissue, it looks different under the microscope. So you may lose some very fine detail answers. However, freezing doesn't change toxins. Freezing doesn't change major trauma, and it doesn't hide most diagnoses that I make. Most of the time, I'm able to tell what happened to an animal based on my gross necropsy, so based on what I see with my own eyes and not having to send things out for microscopic interpretation. The general rule of thumb is if you can't get the animal to an autopsy within three days, So if you have up to three days, you should keep it in the fridge. But if you can't get it done within three days, it should be frozen. And I think for most folks that are doing feral cat care, it's going to take some tree shaking, some searching, some please help me, please help me kind of time. So it might be smart just right away, freeze it immediately and then start finding out who can help you.
1: And the local police, it's better to go through, I mean, sometimes animal control is through your board of health department, not necessarily the police. So how would
0: the police play a role in this? Well, you're absolutely right that any suspicions of a crime should be reported to the police. However, sometimes it helps to have an entree to the police department depending on your community. So, many times the police department will turn and say, We don't handle animal issues, and send you back to the animal control department, and animal control will say, We only deal with dogs. So, sometimes it can be a maddening and frustrating run around in circles. But animal cruelty in every single state in, in the U.S. is illegal. In every single state, there are animal cruelty crimes. That are felony crimes. So it's a matter of perhaps being persistent and of trying different ways at different times to get an answer. So many communities, the police are extremely responsive and take every crime very seriously and will send somebody out and will start an investigation. Other communities, unfortunately, can be very frustrating. And if you don't get a response, you might want to wait until the night shift comes on and try calling again. Or you may want to call and ask to speak with a detective, or you may want to call and ask to speak with a community service officer. Because I guarantee you, if you make enough phone calls, you're going to find a police officer who has an interest in animal welfare and who will understand the connection between cruelty to animals and the rest of us and all of our safety, human safety. We are not yet in a perfect world when it comes (laughs) to protecting animals.
1: It sounds like it. It sounds potentially very sort of frustrating cycle, Are there any resources online for the layperson to be able to learn about this topic?
0: Yeah, there are some really great websites. I can recommend the Animal Legal Defense Fund as a starting point. They have some really great blogs and information about animal cruelty law and its enforcement. And the University of Michigan has an animal law website. So there there are some really great websites out there that can help you understand what your local laws are and what their limitations are. Because unfortunately, in some communities, things that we would absolutely consider to be a crime are not considered a crime.
1: The whole area of law definitely can be mind boggling to me at some point
0: in time. Yeah, are you familiar with what the FBI has recently done with data collection around animal cruelty? No, not at all. This is very exciting, and this is part of the reason why I decided to leave my general animal welfare work and focus on animal cruelty. So, there is a system in law enforcement called NIBERS national incident-based reporting system. Right now, it's a voluntary system, but the local police will feed their data up to the FBI for analysis. It's not sent in any kind of matched detail, so you wouldn't know who the perpetrator was, but the information about the crimes go up so the FBI can do their aggregate analysis. Well, look at this. We see a correlation in this particular area of the country between arson and car theft or, or something like that. So they'll be looking at the data a lot of different ways, and they've decided recently... Starting in the beginning of 2016, they changed the way animal cruelty data is collected. Up until then, it was considered to be a crime against property. And in the NIBRS system, as a crime against property, the data was only collected if an arrest was made. So the change they made was to say, you know what? Animal cruelty is a signal that there's a dangerous person out there, and we really need to pay attention to it. So let's call it, instead of a crime against property, let us call animal cruelty, a crime against society. And with that change, it means now that the data is collected, whether or not an arrest is made, it just requires that the incident be reported. Here's a time when it's important to, yeah, make the police your first call. Tell them that you want to report an incident of animal cruelty. Not all communities are Nibers data collecting communities. As a matter of fact, Massachusetts is not. Um, However, The FBI, the Animal Welfare Institute, the National Sheriff's Association, the International Association of Chiefs of Police, and a bunch of other people have gotten together and signed a memorandum of understanding that we will all be in NIBRS reporting communities by 2020. It's going to take some time, but we're going to be able to start seeing some data come forward that's very granular that will help us understand how much animal cruelty is out there. Because we don't even know. As a crime against property, animal cruelty went into a category other And it went in with crimes like shoplifting and some Mm -hmm. other minor crimes. So there was no way to tease out exactly how much animal cruelty was happening.
1: Uh, That whole concept about animals being property too, that's a great step away from that. So that's very exciting news. Yes. If um, people are interested in finding out more about your work, how could they find you?
0: Oh, I would love for them to visit my website. It's vetinvestigator.com, all one word. And, uh, if they like the interactive experience, they can follow me on Twitter at vet investigator. Sounds great. And is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners today? I loved something that you said at the opening of this conversation that I had to jot down because it (laughs) it means so much to me. You said passion to action. I think what you said combined with what I said, don't borrow sorrow. (laughs) So don't worry and fret about things you can't change, but take that passion and make it action and see what you can do because there's so much that a single passionate person can do and combine with other people, like-minded people, we learn from one another and we do greater and greater things. So it's all very exciting.
1: Find your niche and just go, go, go. Put the pedal to the metal.
0: (laughs) We got work to do.
1: Well, Martha, thank you so much for being a guest on my show and hopefully we'll have you on in
0: the future. It was delightful. I'd love to come back. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to Community Cats Podcast. I would really appreciate it if you would go to iTunes, leave a review of the show. It will help spread the word to help more community cats.